Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the From Ballparks to Buzzbeers podcast. I'm Perry Mortios alongside my co-host, Ryan Swimmer. Swin, how are we doing today? What's up? How are you? Doing great, doing great. Um, As we've kind of started doing recently, we're going to start each episode off with a trivia question. So Swin asked me the Sauce Gardner-related one last week. This week, we're going to take a little bit of a different track. I'm going to go with baseball for your question today, Swin. And, you know, I, I think it's a fair question. I think you should get it, but a little bit of a sneaky answer, and, and you'll see why I picked this question in a minute. But, Swin, before Mookie Betts in 2018, who was the last Red Sox player to win AL MVP? Oh, that was, that was Pedroia in mm, 2008, maybe? 2007 yeah. or eight. Yeah, 2008, 2008, uh, the year after he won uh, Rookie of the Year. Chris Bryant also accomplished that feat, but I was I was hoping to try and get you because Pedroia obviously had a little bit of a short career due to, you know, Manny Machado, and that kind of leads us in because we're going to start off with the Baseball Hall of Fame, and one guy that he's not coming up next year, I don't know exactly when he's coming up, but I've heard some talk surrounding Dustin Pedroia, especially when he retired, Um but Swin, real quick, before we get to the guys that didn't make it, some of the guys that didn't make it for this cycle and who we've got coming up um, in 2025, Pedroia, Hall of Famer, yes or no? I don't think he is, no. I really don't. Yeah, I don't I don't think so either. I thought he was, you know, an exciting player of the laser show, um, all that stuff, but I just don't think he has the stats or the longevity to compete with um, with some of these other guys here. Hall, he's a hall of very good. That's what I like to put him in. Yeah. I Although think, I can't say I was I can't say I was the biggest Pedroia fan myself, though, I will admit. I mean, I'm not gonna lie, as as Pedroia's obviously short, I'm kinda short. So I, I kinda like seeing a guy like that. Um you know, for me personally, I know you're more of a pitcher, but um, yeah, got, there's a lot of good talent next year too, but we'll get into that later. Yeah, we definitely will. But let's start with the guys that didn't make it this year. Obviously, led by Adrian Beltre. I mean, certainly has the stats, right? Over 3,000 hits, over 450 home runs, 286 lifetime career hitter. Um, one of the best third basemen probably in the past, you know, 15 to 20 years. Um, Swin, your thoughts on Beltre? I know he only got around 95% of the vote. Um, but I thought, you know, for sure, first ballot lock um, when I saw Beltre was on the ballot. Yeah, absolutely. I thought he was first ballot for sure. And I mean, 95% is not no, no joke. Yeah. Um, there's only been one unanimous player in history out of everybody, and that was Mariano Rivera a couple of years ago. So that's that's really good, especially for the Baseball Hall of Fame. And, and and I might say that's probably the hardest Hall of Fame to get into. I, I, I would think, agree. I think that's a pretty fair statement. But as you said, the stats don't lie. Over 3,000 hits, just shy of 500 home runs, over 1,700 RBIs. I mean, he he was a he's a five-time Gold Glover, four-time Silver Slugger. The stats speak for himself. He was a first ballot for sure. I, I wasn't too worried about that at all. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't have a problem with him either. Um, I thought the only thing that may have held him back is he did play third base a little bit. Um, had kind of a slower start to his career if you just look at the numbers. But then it kind of seems like that year with Boston in twenty ten kind of turned him around, and he was one of these rare guys that was better probably in his thirties than he was in his twenties. 
which I think kind of helped his case with more, you know, younger voters, voters, excuse me, coming in through the cycle um, to see a guy did that did so well in specifically the 2010s versus the 2000s. 2000s, I think that helped him out a little bit as well. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, this, this, I mean, just just off of home runs, as you said, better in his 30s. Uh, he had 28, 32, 36, 30, 19, 18, 32. And then he, the age kind of caught up to him. And he only, he had less than 20 in his last two years. But yeah. his career high was, was 48. I mean, he was a, he was a hitter. He, he knew how to hit. Um, couldn't quite get the Rangers over the hump in the World Series, which I think is something that, probably didn't push him over 95%. I, I definitely say that hurt him. They lost to the Cardinals and David Freeze, that whole, you know, heroic performance by him. But, but yeah, very good. And another thing, too, that I, I think helped with, with uh, the younger voters, too, is his personality on the field. Yeah, yeah. Um, just, just, I mean, he got ejected uh, by Joe West against the Marlins one year because – he moved the on deck circle when they were down like 18 to nothing. And he got tossed for that. And I mean, obviously you see him paired with Elvis Andrews and, and, and him touching his hair and him spazzing out. And it was just, just, he yeah, was a was fun gonna, player to watch for sure. Thing. Um, yeah. I think that kind of publicity helped his case as well. But the guy that I really want to focus in on that got into the hall of fame is Joe Maurer, because I think we're both um, a little different than us, right? Because, I think without a doubt, and this goes for all sports, there's a difference between a Hall hall of Famer and a first ballot Hall of Famer, right? Those first ballot guys are the guys that you looked at and say, yup, Hall of Fame right away, right? And then the Hall of Famers are guys, you know, whether it was eight years, six years, whatever, took a little bit longer and you had to go into the stats a little bit more and go into numbers like war. Um, but Joe Maurer, first ballot Hall of Famer, primarily a catcher, right? And that kind, I that helps him, in my opinion, Um. 55.2 WAR wins above replacement, 2,123 career hits, 143 homers, um, 306 bag average, three times Gold Glove has the MVP, which um, you know in 20 um, 2009, which was very very helpful. But I I I know like me personally, he just snuck in with 75%. I think catchers are different, right? Because mostly catchers are relied on for their defense. And I think that goes for a lot of teams. And I think this was the rare guy that hit for average, but probably didn't hit for as much power as you thought. And I just want to know your thoughts on, I think we both agree that Joe Maurer's a Hall of Famer, but your thoughts on him being a first ballot Hall of Famer. Absolutely. I mean, Joe Maurer is a Hall of Famer. I was shocked when I saw his name on the ballot um, as a, as a he got in in his first year. Um, not, not even, not, this is nothing against Joe Maurer, but I mean, some there are other names on the list that should definitely be in, be in over him right now. And, and one thing that concerned me was the longevity, right? Um, I mean, he didn't play for that long. He only played for 14 years. Um, and his first year, he only played 35 games yeah. in 2011. He only played 82. So he played less than 2000 games, but. But just a fun stat, uh, he only, he got up to bat um, 7,960 times, and he only hit an infield pop-up 31 of those times. I just thought That's that crazy. was kind of a cool stat. But as you said, I mean, he got that one MVP, but other than that, I mean, he was a six-time All-Star. 
only a three-time gold glove, not really known for his defense, batting title three times, five-time silver slugger. I mean, the only thing that really stood out as a, as a catcher for him was obviously that MVP season, but he was an above-average hitter, but his defense wasn't great. Yeah, I think it's so tough to judge catchers and, you know, relievers for that matters. They just don't play in as many games, right? Like, if you look at Adrian Beltre, right, just to, you know, pull something up here, but 152, 138, 126, 159, 158, 156, 156, 156. That's one, two, three, four, five straight years of playing over in over 150 games, and Joe Maurer only did that once. So that's kind of a tough thing to differentiate between, you know, players at different positions. And one thing that I also want to mention, which applies to future years as well, is if Joe Maurer got in first ballot, Buster Posey should 100% get in first ballot as well. Um, I would argue Buster Posey was the better catcher, the better player of the two. Um, I don't think Joe Maurer is undeserving of a first ballot. I just think it's a little weird to see a catcher go in like that. Um, Especially, as you said, that game's played, I think, is the biggest metric that was kind of hindering his case here. Yeah, absolutely. I think the one thing that kind of pushed him over the hump was his career batting average was over 300. It was 306, which is honestly up at some of the the, the best hitters of all time. I mean, if if you're getting on base three out of 10 times, that's that's Hall of Fame numbers. It's just that he, he didn't really hit for much power. His career high in home runs was 28. Uh, but other than that, I mean, I don't know. I was kind of surprised, especially for a guy that, I mean, he didn't even have 150 home runs. He had less, he had less than 1,000 RBIs by 80. I mean, it, I was kind of surprised to see him first ballot. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's fair. I think that that's why that 75% was kind of low, just over the threshold. I think it was like 75.8. But I think a lot of those guys, I think that number would have been closer up to 87 90% if he had made it to the second year because I think a lot of guys said, you know, Joe Maurer's a Hall of Famer, but he's not first ballot. And lastly, let's move into the guy that didn't make it, or that, excuse me, the last guy that did make it. Todd Helton, first baseman primarily, or completely for the Colorado Rockies, um, 2,500 hits, over 350 homers. Another guy that bad 316, three times, three-time gold glove winner, um, has one, two, three top 10 MVPs. So this is, this is interesting, right? Because you talk about the Coors Field effect, right? And playing in a place like Denver where the altitude is obviously a little bit lower and stuff like that. I just want your thoughts on Ted Helton real quick uh, before we move into you know next year and stuff like that uh just briefly before I get into Todd Helton I'm gonna I'm gonna throw a little surprise trivia at you all right okay okay so Todd Todd Helton hit his last career home run in 2013 his last career home run was off of which Red Sox pitcher it was 2013, so the championship year when the Red Sox won. Who did he hit his last career home run off of? Ooh, that, that's that's a tough one. Uh, I'm not. If I mean, you, I remember. I, I give you, I'll give you one hint if you needed it. But if you just want to take a shot at it, go for it. If you want a hint, I, I can give you one. I'm I'm gonna just take a shot at it, um, because I feel like it, you win pick some obscure guy, right? And. I'm going to go with Koji Uehara. I think it came, you know, late in the game, off a reliever. Um, and that that's purely a shot in the dark. 
It was Jake Peavy. Jake Peavy. <laughs> wow. That's that's a name I haven't heard in a while, Swin. I believe he's on the ballot, or he was last year. He was. I believe he... Um, I don't think he met the 10%. Yeah, I mean, I didn't think he was a Hall of Famer either, but still a very solid player for that championship team. But carrying on... Um, but, you know, people talk about the, the cores effect, as you mentioned. I really don't care. Um, yes, the balls do fly far farther in the the um, altitude. But at the end of the day, you're still going to be able to hit the ball. And I get that it made the stats may be impacted. But also keep in mind, he only played there half of the season as well, which is more than everybody else. But still, out of the 162 games in a season, he only played half of them there. And I'll just go on at his best season, 2000. He had 216 hits, almost 150 RBIs. And he hit 372. I mean, that screams Hall of Fame. I, I can't believe he did. He, I, he didn't even he finished top five in MVP that year. I, I mean, yeah. I don't know who won MVP in 2000, but it, honestly, it could have been him very easily. He had 42 home runs along with that and 103 walks. Uh, Jason Giambi was so, MVP that year. Honestly, I'd probably give it to Todd Helton. I mean, he only had he had a, think about this. He had 103 walks to 61 strikeouts. That's unbelievable. Especially oh, excuse in Major me, League excuse Baseball. me. Sorry, sorry. Jeff Kent won MVP that year, um, finishing just ahead of Barry Bonds. Yeah. So carrying on, as you said, I mean, he wasn't an All Star very much. Only five times, four times Silver Slugger, but he did win the batting title one year. Um, definitely deserved to be a Hall of Famer. Again, I know the threshold for first ballot. I don't think he quite met that, but I, I think this was definitely well-deserved. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree on all your points. And let's go into the guy that didn't get in right. Final year of his ballot, Gary Sheffield, right? Um, you know, hit a lot of teams, 2,600 hits, 500 homers, 292 batting average. I mean... Just on the numbers alone, right, which is primarily what we have to go off of here, I, I, mean, I find it hard to believe he didn't get out of the Hall of Fame. Uh, I mean, I can definitely tell you one reason. I mean, he did play for, for 22 seasons, and, I mean, he was banged up a little bit for most of those. But I think one thing, I mean, as you mentioned, it's a big debate, and maybe we have it another week, if not today. But his name was one of the names connected to um, performance-enhancing drugs. And that scares a lot of Hall of Fame voters. Yes. And that, that has kept Barry Bonds out of the Hall of Fame. I certainly think that it'll keep A-Rod out of the Hall of Fame. It's kept Roger Clemens out of the, the Hall of Fame, Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire, so on and so on. And so that little connection to it, I think, is why he did not get in and and. He's defending it. He said he didn't do it. Who really knows? There's there's really no definitive answer there. But I'm going to assume that that's probably what kept him off because the stats are there for sure. Yeah, and and here's what I'll say just about PEDs too, right? He was named in the Mitchell Report. Didn't get suspended. All of those guys that you listed off, um, A-Rod obviously got suspended a couple times. Sosa got suspended. Mark Guy got suspended. Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens, arguably the best hitter ever and one of – the best pitchers ever um, didn't get in, obviously, due to that connection to performance enhancing drugs. Look, I 
it's it's tough to draw a line there, right? And it's going to be and the next big kind of scandal that's going to come up is the Astros cheating scandal. Um that's that Hall of Famer Hall of Fame voters are going to have kind of have to grapple with here. And there's a lot of guys that you'll see they'll draw a line. They'll say if this guy was named in the Mitchell report, no Hall of Fame. But then some other guys will say, "Okay, you know who else was named in the Mitchell report? David Ortiz. David Ortiz never was suspended gone first ballot." But then a lot of guys will say, "Okay, you know, obviously a lot a lot of people were named in the Mitchell report. I don't know off the top of my head. But the line for a lot of people is if this guy got suspended or not. And that's kind of what the frame of reference is for PDs. And look, look, it's not it's so tough to judge based on that because you can't sit there and say, "Oh, well, you can't play the what if game. What if this guy didn't use PDs? What if how long was he using PDs for stuff like this? When did he stop? Did he ever stop?" And that's such a complicated game to play. And I agree with you. I think that's the really the only reason why Sheffield's not in the Hall of Fame based on this committee. He could get in um, in future years with the Veterans Committee and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the stats are there. Played 22 years, over 500 home runs, over 1,600 RBIs. And I'll just say this too. I mean, he has those numbers and he pretty much missed four years of his career only playing 68, 72, 40, and 90 games in, in four of his years because of injury. Yeah. So, I mean, the stats were definitely there. Actually, there's another season with, with 50. So, I mean, that's almost five years worth of stats, and those are the numbers he still put up. And um, here's what I'll say about the, the, the PEDs, and, and then we can take it whatever direction you want and maybe debate it in another week. Here's what I'll say, right? Yes, the PEDs impacted baseball and my two things is i don't i don't condone the use of it either i i don't like that they use it do i think they should be in the hall of fame it depends on the player yeah yeah but here's what i'll say yes steroids you know obviously increase your muscle power and your stats but at the end of the day you can take as many steroids as you want and if you still don't hit the ball right the stats won't be there so that's what I'll say to that. So there, I mean, it's not a legitimate argument, but if Barry Bonds couldn't hit a baseball, the, the steroids can't help him if he can't hit the baseball right. So that's what I'll say to that. But I, I don't think he, sh- I don't think anybody with the, the PED should get in. I, I don't agree with that. So I'm on the same page as the Hall of Fame there. Yeah, and obviously it's such a tough discussion to have. Um, a guy like A. Rod Wright was suspended multiple times. I believe he only got like 34 percent of the vote. Um, this year he's probably he not shouldn't gonna get make it. it. I agree, but a guy like Barry Bonds is closer, right? I mean, that that Barry Bonds and Clemens are the two like big ones, and that's gonna be interesting to see how it goes. But let's move into next year before we kind of switch sports and switch topics here. Some interesting names that are still on the ballot, right? Billy Wagner is gonna be in his tenth year reliever, seventy four percent of ballots this year. I believe he missed Hall of Fame induction by five years reliever he's probably going to get in right based on how his career is trending but guys like andrew jones carlos beltran are the other two guys jones with 62 percent carlos beltran with 57 percent this year they're kind of the big name returners but then you got you got a lot of interesting um first year candidates as well you got suzuki's should be a lock for first ballot cc sabathia who it's gonna be close pedroia ian kinsler who's obviously isn't a Hall of Famer, in my opinion. Felix Hernandez, you pretty much threw that perfect game and dip, but Troy Tulowitzki, Ben Zobris, Curtis Granderson, Hinley Ramirez, 
Russell Martin, Adam Jones, and obviously a lot of those guys aren't going to go in. But Swin, from that, really the group of four with Suzuki, Sabathia, Pedroia, Kinsler, who are your, you know, in terms of first ballot Hall of Famers, I think we both agree that Sabathia is a Hall of Famer. But first ballot obviously is going to be tougher for him than Suzuki. Ichiro is the only one on this list that's first ballot. I mean, it's guaranteed. He's an MVP. Over, I believe he has over 3,000 hits. Yeah. He just yeah. did longevity. And uh, here's what I'll say. Out of those names you mentioned, I see maybe, including Ichiro, maybe one or two more after him in the newcomers list. I agree. CC Sabathia is also definitely going to make it. Not first ballot. He might be on there for a little bit before he gets in. But I'll definitely say, and I think a name that's being overlooked is I think Felix Hernandez could have a shot at making it. Not first ballot. And, and not near the future, but at some point, I, I definitely see the potential for him to get in. I don't, what do you think about that? I mean, I, I don't know. Obviously, he had that perfect game in 2013. I mean, I haven't looked in Felix Hernandez enough, quite honestly. Um, right? He played 15 years, but I believe, like, the last, like, two or three years of that, he was kind of just bouncing around trying to find a home. Like, it wasn't anything, you know, he didn't have, the, he wasn't, like, dominant through those 15 years. Um, so that's a little tough. I agree. I think Suzuki and Sabathia are basically Hall of Fame locks. Sabathia, I, I agree with what you're saying. I would estimate by like the fourth year, uh, third, fourth year on his ballot. Suzuki, first bout, no doubter. Um, I think Billy Wagner is going to get in from the returning crew, kind of that Billy Wagner, Andrew Jones, Carlos Beltran. He, I mean, he had 74% his last year on the ballot. Usually you experience an uptick there, but Carlos Beltran is the name I want to focus in for a minute or so here. Because he's the first guy on the ballot that was in the Astros cheating scandal, right? Was apparently one of the ringleaders with Alex Cora. Went and wanted to coach the Mets. Was hired and then fired basically before, actually before he even coached a game. So, your thoughts on Beltron, real quick, before we switch uh, gears here? Uh, just looking at the stats. Um, I I don't know if he's actually gonna make it or not. I mean, he had. Uh, over uh, 2,700 hits, uh, less than 450 home runs, and almost 1,600 RBIs. I mean, he was solid. He wasn't great. Obviously, he has that World Series, that the whole cheating scandal, as you mentioned, and I, I think that impacts him. I, I don't. I, I have a tough time putting him in the Hall of Fame. I don't, I don't, especially as I mentioned earlier, it's so hard to get in, and these voters are really strict about stuff like that. And I don't think the general public really understands how strict that the voters are about this and how stubborn they are too. Because as you mentioned, Billy Wagner should be in by now. Yep. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And it's but I, I don't. I don't think he gets in. Yeah, and it's a lot of the baseball traditionalists that I think especially are keeping Wagner out because it's harder for a reliever, right? We were just talking about Joe Maurer. Um, you know, less games played, less innings pitched. You know, all that stuff factors in. And it's tough. Do you look at the guy in context of his era, in context of other relievers? It, it's, it's really tough, and I don't envy their job at all. But let's go into the Celtics for a little bit here um, because I think we both have a couple things that we want to mention. And let's start with the Celtics before we branch off kind of title chances, um, chances of reaching the finals, stuff like that. But Swin, before before I kind of go, wh- what do you see out of the Celtics this year from a pure you know basketball standpoint? 
Um, I mean, I feel like nothing, I see consistency. I mean, I feel like nothing has really changed since day one. And in my opinion, that's a good thing, right? You're still seeing Tatum show up, Brown's showing up, but they're all doing it in different ways, right? Like yeah. the other night against Houston. Sure. You, you paid Jalen Brown. What was it? 300 million plus. Yeah. three hundred. And he got, he got, I mean, he, he didn't score 30, but double right so these guys are starting to find ways to impact the game not just scoring and that's going to be crucial for this celtics playoff run and and i mean obviously you're going to need him to step up at some point but you also got to find the balance of oh, am i shooting too much can i kick it out to Derek white who's should be an all-star drew mm-hmm. holiday can knock down shots obviously you have tatum porzingis and him have great chemistry so he doesn't the pressure isn't necessarily as heavily on Brown and Tatum's shoulders as it has been in years past. Uh, my one concern is um, the center position. And yes. not because I don't think Porzingis is very good, but Porzingis is not a very physical center, right? He's not that great of a matchup on Embiid. Embiid's bigger, stronger, wider. Porzingis is kind of skinny, right? And most of the time you'll see Drew Holiday on... Embiid or when Al Horford's in the game, he'll be on Embiid. And I just, I think that causes, that's going to cause a problem, especially when you bump into Jokic like they did the other night. They had Drew Holiday on him. And that that didn't make much sense to me. But as I mentioned, I don't really know who you would put on him. So I'd like to see them go trade for, I don't know, maybe, I don't know what assets they have, but depending on, it looks like the Bulls might be selling. So maybe go get a guy like an Andre Drummond who can give you a couple minutes here and there. Yeah, or like Isaiah Stewart from the Pistons, I've seen um, Floyd as a possibility. And here's what I'll say, right? You and I came on the podcast at the beginning of the season, and we said the X factor for this team is Chris Saps Porzingis. And I think that's still the truth, right? If he stays healthy, he gives him a key third option. But you got to keep going to him, especially the game that comes to mind is the Denver game last week, where I believe he had 15 points in the first quarter and then only took three shots the rest of the game. This team falls in love with the three-point. And that's really, really concerning for me. Like, especially concerning. And I know that that's Missoula's philosophy, and that's one of the concerns of mine. But it, it, it worries me a little bit, because when this team goes to the paint, they're going to be tough to stop. If this team plays basketball the right way, and I think you and I both agree, the number one shot in basketball is the layup, right? Now I think the Celtics team believes it's the corner three, or wing three, or a catch-and-shoot wide-open three. I don't care. But and I know they're not going to stop shooting the three because Missoula won't let them. But that's something that I'm worried about. Like they are the definition of a make or miss team right now. Like the to the T, they're the definition of that. Yeah, and and here's what I'll say to that. I, I don't think I'm I'm as extreme as you are on the threes. I mean, if you get an open look, take it obviously. But I think there has to be a point where. You know, maybe one night you're like, oh, they're not falling. Like, in the case against Denver, they shot 14 for 44. That's 32%. That's just, that's a little much for me. Like, if the shots are falling, keep taking them, right? But, I mean, you miss 33s. Like, even if you cut that in half and you take, you know, mid-range jumpers instead, you probably beat Denver by 20 because, I mean, Denver shot 8 for 31 from 3, which is 26%. So they somehow shot... Yeah. Worse than the Celtics did, and they still won by two. 
So, I mean, it, it's tough, right? Because, you know, when you hit the, when they hit them, they win. When they miss them, they lose. And, but as, as you said, it's, it's, it's not, I don't really think it's Joe Missoula's philosophy. I just think it's the way the NBA is trending because every team now is shooting over 43s. So it's, it's a league-wide, I don't want to say issue, but kind of taking the league by storm is the three. And, I mean, obviously it was kind of inspired by Steph Curry shooting these deep threes. And then you got guys like Damian Lillard who kind of followed and Clay Thompson. But now everybody can shoot. I mean, it wasn't that long ago where you had centers that weren't, weren't shooting threes. I mean, the Dwight Howard, DeAndre Jordan, Andre Drummond, those guys couldn't hit a three to save their career. Or a free throw, for that matter. And now you got guys shooting seventy-five percent plus in free throws, and you got guys spacing the floor now. Yeah, and and my concern, right, is in the clutch, because you you like to see them go to the paint more in the fourth quarter. And I just got a couple stats before we get to like you know contenders, but this is an interesting stat, and I feel like you know as Celtics fans, we've we've seen this. Um, this is from Gary Washburn at the Boston Globe. But in clutch situations this season, so five-point game in the final five minutes, so that's down five, up five in the final five minutes. Tatum this season, you want to guess what he's shooting, Swin? This is from the field. That's like 30%, right? Eight, yeah. eight for 31, is that what I saw? It's 33%. When the game is within three points in the final 30 seconds, he's one for seven. And this is as the Celtics as a whole. In games in which the Celtics trail by three points or fewer in the final 10 seconds, the Celtics are 1 for 11 from the floor. So look, that's my concern, right? The clutch time situation. Because I'd like to see them go to the basket. And going back to that Denver game, which, you know, I think I think is worth talking about. Tatum had a layup that he missed, right? He had that mid-range that he didn't even get rim on. And Joe Mazzulli drew up two plays. He had two chances to drop a play, and they both were awful. I'm, I'm worried that this team is going to wet themselves in the clutch because we've seen it in years past. That's my concern, and I think that starts from the coach. And I'd like to see them. I'm not saying they have to go to the paint you know, in the, in the second quarter, but go, please, for the love of God, if the other team has five fouls and you're in the bonus, Go to the paint, especially in this Denver game. Brown and Tatum, you have a size advantage over Jamal Murray, right? Go to the paint, please. And I'm, I'm going to keep saying it because I think that's so, so important for this team. I need you to do me a favor. Yeah. I assume that those stats, those clutch time stats are on your computer. I, I assume you don't print those out. No. I've got them up right now. They're on, they're on a computer, right? Yep. Close the tab. That, those stats are a bunch of garbage. Don't look at those. Switch. Garbage, garbage, garbage. Switch. I don't care about Switch. clutch time this or clutch time that. I don't care. So right, you want to know listen. something else? Real quick. This goes back yeah, to last clutch year. Time stats. This goes back to last year. This isn't even clutch time. Okay? In the Eastern Conference Finals last year in Miami, right? The Celtics... Um, Lost three times, right, before the Game 7, which will, <coughs> excuse me, we'll throw out Game 7 because Tatum rolled his ankle. We'll throw that out. But in in the Celtics lost the first three games of their Eastern Conference Finals, okay? So games 1, 2, 3, they went down 3-0. 
You want to know how many baskets Tatum scored in the fourth quarters combined of all three of those games. Just take a guess. In three games? Yeah. I don't know. And then, was this just stupid clutch time stats no. or the whole fourth quarter? Whole fourth quarter. Five. Zero. Zero, Zero. baskets in the fourth quarter. That's concerning. Um, that, that's I don't my know. Concern. I think your clutch time stats are a bunch of garbage. Clutch time. Define clutch time. That's, that's a bunch of garbage. I just told you what it was. It's within five points in the final clutch five time. minutes. Give me a break. Clutch time. Get out of here. They're playing basketball. Swim. I think those stats are completely bogus. And one thing, before you call out Tatum, I want you to go look at every other team's clutch time stats because I guarantee you they're similar except for Trey Young because I saw something about those stupid clutch time stats earlier today. They are the same for every player, and they're in the final five minutes of the fourth and after Tatum has played 35 minutes of the game. I don't want to hear the clutch time stats. I okay, think it's but, nuts. But go, look up, go look up the other players' clutch I'm, time I'm, stats. I'm looking it up right now. But this is what superstars do. This is what MVPs do. Uh, like, it's it's frustrating. Ready? Okay, so let's let's go down to I can't even find Jason Tatum. I'm on number forty. The first Celtics guy is Derek White at thirty nine. Jason Tatum isn't even in the first fifty here. Um, do you want to guess who the number one guy is? There's a guy. Trey actually. Young. Siakam. It's Siakam. Deontay oh, Murray. Yeah, Schroeder. Barnes. Curry. Thompson. Brooke Lopez, Sadiq Ben. So look, I get your point, right? I get your point. Okay, right, but here's the thing. One more thing. First of all, I'm looking at the same website you are right now, right? That's fair. So you got Siaka, Murray, Schroeder, Scotty Barnes, Curry, right? Is that the website? NBA, yeah, yeah NBA. that's the website. That's the website. Yeah, yeah. DeJounte Murray's taking two shots. What is the volume on the Tatum? Because DeJounte Murray's taking two Eight minutes in the clutch. You you best believe Tatum is playing the the whole clutch time. So I don't want to hear it. Swin and I get that. And it's plus is... minus and, and and Murray's plus time. I'm just using Dejounte Murray because he's he's number two, right? The top guy. He's actually in those minutes. He's a minus one point eight. Look, look, that's fair. But this is what I'm saying. It's a it's a how how many times, Swin, as a Celtics fan, have you sat and watched a game, right? And you're sitting there. And you know the they're up two with four minutes left, right? And you're how many times do you, as a fan, say go to the paint? It, I mean, it depends. If there it's an open three, I'm fine with it. If it's a contested little Jason Tatum step to the side, yeah, three side that step used to do, then so, I'm upset. So that's my like. This is a reoccurring issue, and it's gone worse under Joe Missoula before Ime Udoka. They've. I'm fine with the three because that's the way the game is trending. But can they please, please go to the paint? That's all I I'm think saying. the clutch time stats. I don't want to. I never want to hear those clutch time. Never bring those up again. Those are. I'm, those I'm are gonna BS. bring it up in a month when they lose another game in the clutch no. time. I'm gonna say those same stats Close, again. Do me a favor. Close that tab and never open it again. I don't want to hear those again. Those are crap. Dennis Schroeder, better clutch time. Yeah, Dennis Schroeder's probably taken three shots in the clutch. I bet you, t- how many shots has Tatum taken in the clutch this year? Um, I believe the number got... was 11. Yeah, Dennis Schroeder. 
1.3 field goal attempts average. Okay. That's, that's, that's nuts. So Who cares? Look at the, you got to look at the volume. You shoot more, you're going to miss more. That's what happens. Okay, so I just have 33% here. I don't here. think it is. When the game's within three points, he's one for seven with 30 seconds left. How many shots is he taking compared to DeJounte Murray in, the, in that again, time again, That's what I want to know. Again, fair point. Fair point. But let's, let's hold Here, Here's the deal, right? One second. Here's the deal, right? If I shoot 10 threes and I go 9 for 8 and I make you – or I'm sorry. If I shoot 10 threes and I go 9 for 10, right, 90%, and I make you shoot 100 threes, are you going to hit 90 of them? No. You're not. You're not going to hit nine for ten every time. So the numbers have to be the same to get a legitimate argument on the clutch time stats, swim, right? Swim, like but this, you... brings, this brings me to my next point. Jason Tam, seventh NBA season. Jalen Brown, eighth NBA season. They've got to stop. Make, you're making excuses for them. Stop. These these are guys who the highest paid player in the league, and Jason Tam, I think by all accounts, is a top five player in the league. It's not an excuse. You think that Dennis Schroeder is going to get double teamed under in the last 30 seconds taking a shot? No, I'd leave Dennis Schroeder wide open. Okay, That's but not then, an excuse. But he's a top five excuse player. Not... Make another decision. You can't. You can't. He's in the foot. You look at, read some of the names that he's behind and give me legitimate names like Giannis, Damian Lillard, Curry, Durant. I don't want to see. Look at who's 13 on this he, list in this clutch time crap. Catavius Coswell Pope. Catavius Coswell Pope is a bucket. You're better than this. Swin. Perry. I'm Swin. Giannis Lillard Durant. All higher. That's fair, but I don't want to hear. I don't want to. I want you. I don't want you to say he's in the 50s and he's behind Catavius Coswell Pope. Okay, who, okay. Quite frankly, shouldn't even be in the game. Jason Tatum is number 50. They're um, 11 and 7 in clutch time situations, which is worrisome. 33.3%, right? He's only shooting 82% on free throws in the clutch time. That's kind of funny. But he averages 2.7 points, and he, on average, he's averaging 0.7 field goals made out of 2.2 attempted in clutch time. I don't know. That's just something I'd be worried about because guys like Giannis and Bede. Uh, Dame are higher. Can you use some of the names that are higher than him on this list? I'm just sure. going to go ahead. Go ahead. All right, ready? Here we go. Grayson Allen, Yusuf Nurkic, Kevon Looney, Bogdan Vadonovich. And, and here's what I want to say. Jokic is 22, but Clint Capella is higher on the list. Are you telling me that Clint Capella, you'd rather have Clint Capella in in the clutch than Nikola Jokic? I don't think so. So I don't want to hear it. Swin, it's it's a, nuts. Your, your it's stats a concern. Are nuts. You're crazy if you don't think it's I don't a concern. care. Okay, so you're telling me. So the number one guy on this list is, is Pascal Siakam, right? You're telling me you'd rather Pascal Siakam in the clutch than Jason Tatum or Jokic or Giannis or Lillard or Stephen Curry? I'm not I'm not saying because that. Because of the, you're saying, well, you're comparing stupid No, what stats. I'm saying is Tatum needs stupid. to be better. Give me a legitimate argument. I don't want to hear it. It's It's nuts. These he, stats are nuts. Tatum needs to be better. But let's agree. Sure, he needs to be better. But you can't compare it to when you got Sadiq Bey at seventh on the clutch time rating. That's nuts. Okay. Okay. Let's let's hone in 
on the contenders because at the end of the day, right, the Celtics are by should be the one seed in the East, right? Should a, a top two lock. Um, let's talk about the East before we go in the West, and let's start with the Bucks because they fired or dismissed Adrian Griffin. Apparently, the reports are that he, Giannis, and Dame were getting along. Thirty and thirteen, bring in Doc Rivers. This is a massive failure by the Bucks organization. Uh, firing Boonholzer, bringing Griffin, and then having to bring in Doc Rivers, I think is, for a contending team that already has a title and a t- top three player in the league in Giannis, it's blasphemy. It's really, really just poor organizational management. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, one thing that's that's not really going to show up when you see Doc Rivers as the coaches. Right now, the Bucs are playing the, uh, paying the three coaches' salaries. Mike Budenholzer, Adrian Griffin, and now Doc Rivers. And I, I think it's crazy. I don't remember exactly why they fired Mike Budenholzer, but I remember a lot of people were surprised. I mean, he was pretty much fresh off of a title. So that didn't make sense to me. And then they went with a younger coach, but that didn't make think, sense to me. Well, I think that their main concern was obviously Chris Middleton's getting older. Lopez is old. They're starting to become an older team. And I don't think if they knew 100% if they were going to re-sign Middleton. And I certainly don't think they were expecting to get Damian Lillard. That's why I think they went with the younger coach. And, and Swin, this is part of a bigger conversation with the Bucks that we just, you know, don't have time for today. But, you know, you had Bonehorser. You fired him after the first round exit to the Heat. Why didn't you bring in Doc Rivers, you know, before the season started, I don't know because they promised in a consultant December swing, and that's like a re- like I don't want if you know you're a really good coach and you've won the NBA Finals and I'm a rookie who has to deal with the top three player in Dame Lillard. I don't want you telling me what to do. That's a bad dynamic, right? So why didn't you just hire him at the beginning of the year? I don't know. The other thing is like sure, Damian Lillard and Giannis should be on paper a great pairing. It should have them come, you know, playoff time. But they won a title with Holiday, Middleton, Boonhoser. I don't know if they necessarily absolutely 100% had to make that move because now you've got Drew Holiday going to your biggest rival, the Boston Celtics. And real quick on Drew Holiday, I haven't seen anybody mention Marcus Smart once. And I've been saying this on the podcast for as long as I've been doing it. Marcus Smart sucks. He sucks, okay? But we'll go back to the Bucks. But just your thoughts on, like, that entire, like, Really, this past offseason for the Bucks, and it could go down as a failure. I was just, I mean, as a Celtics fan, I was very pleased, but I just, I, I feel like they're kind of in a similar like situation as the Red Sox now, right? And hear me out before you go all crazy on me. Like two years ago when they traded Vasquez, I'm not really sure the Bucks know what to do. It, like some of the moves they make, it looks like they're going for the title, but other moves, it looks like they're taking a step back. Like, they traded Grayson Allen. He was a solid bench player for them. He's having a phenomenal year this year with Phoenix. And as you mentioned, I mean, as you as you mentioned, I mean, I, I don't think when they traded for Damian Lillard, when they when they gave up Drew Holiday, I, I don't think they expected him to be on the Celtics. So I think that came back to bite them too. And obviously they needed to make a move to get Lillard, but at the end of the day, that hurt them in a big way that I don't think they were ready for. So, as you said, firing the coaches, it, it didn't make sense. And I, I do think Doc Rivers is a good fit for them. Um, historically, he's been a yeah, very sure. player-friendly uh, player coach. 
obviously managed Ray Allen, Pierce, Garnett, right? He's also Four a Hall of Fame choker. Superstars. Well, that's, yeah, that's very true. And, and you know what? As you mentioned, right? And, and I mean, I love Doc Rivers brought a title to the city of Boston, yep. but people, yep, people hang on to that 2008 title that he won. And they, they don't really acknowledge the fact that he hasn't been anywhere close to the finals since then. Well, since 2010, I guess. But I, I, I don't think he's a bad coach. There are a lot worse options they could have went. I'll say that. I, I agree. And he's a good fit for the team. But, like, this, this completely changes how I view the Bucks in the East. Right? Now I view them as kind of dysfunctional. You know, they're probably going to be better in year two with Lillard. Right? Um, let's move over to the Sixers because well, I view one one more, one, go, one thing real quick too is is my view with the Bucks. I'm I'm starting to kind of view them as the Lakers, right? Everybody jokes about GM LeBron. I think they're reaching a point where it's yes. starting to be G, GM Giannis. I think he's starting to run the team a little bit. He got the bag. He committed. He wants to win. They're gonna do whatever it takes to please him, similar to LeBron, right? So I don't need to explain it in depth that much, but. I think the firing of this coach was a Giannis move, as you mentioned, not a organizational move. 100% agree. Um, let's talk about the Sixers real quick, right? We know that the Sixers can't beat the Celtics. I'm still not worried about the Sixers, even with MB, because I think Al Horford can shut him down. Even with Maxi, I'm not worried. Plus, they're the Sixers. Like, until the Sixers beat the Celtics, I'm not going to trust the Sixers. I don't know if you have any other thoughts on that, but I kind of view them as, you know, the Steelers of the Patriots dynasty where you always think that they're going to beat them and they have, you know, really good players in Ben Roethlisberger and stuff like that, but they always just somehow come up short. And that's kind of how I view the Sixers and the Celtics relationship, so to speak. Yeah. And here's what I'll say, right? I mean, every Celtics fan loves the guy. And I mean, I do too. Al Horford's 37. Yeah. Okay. They need somebody else to shut and be done. All right, I get it. Al Horford has been great for years, but this guy is on the way out, and, and that's just the truth. And and it's so tough because these guys that shut down Embiid and Yochik, right, they don't grow on trees. Like, I don't know if there's anybody in the league right now that can do it. Um, he's 37. He's actually, you know what, just to put it in perspective, he's two years younger than LeBron. I don't know. Maybe that's the wake-up call fans need. But, I mean, he cannot shut down Embiid for the whole game anymore, which is why I think they need to trade for a center. But as you said, the 76ers, they've messed up time after time. Ben Simmons, Markel Fultz, they completely overpaid Tobias Harris by a large amount of money. Letting Jimmy Butler go. Uh, The list goes on. I mean, they fired... They're cycling through coaches. It's just, it's a tough, it's tough for them to get over the hump, but they really hit on Maxi. So he'll be a good, he should be an all-star and he's a good player. So I eventually see them. I don't think they'll ever be better than the Celtics as long as Tatum and Brown and McCore are there. But I mean, Embiid put up 70 last night, but unfortunately one in the NBA, one guy can't beat you. So I think they'll be all right. Swin, I don't want to pull John Morant here, but... Relatively speaking, the Celtics should be fine in the East. Do you agree with that? Um. Oh man. I mean, as you said, the Celtics always find a way to blow it. So I'm gonna say no. And I, I mean, I think some teams are being overlooked, especially because of their past. I mean, Milwaukee. They always play fired up against the Celtics. Uh, one team that makes me just a little nervous, and I don't know why. Maybe the new addition of this, this small forward will help, but. I don't, the Knicks are no joke, and I never thought I'd say that, but I yeah. think the Knicks are legit. 
I think they could actually be a real threat to the Celtics. I don't think Miami is is going to upset them again this year. Although they, they just make a big move. Well, not a big move, but Terry Rozier has been solid for them. Former Celtic, I might add. But other than that, I mean, I, every year I think that the Cavs are going to be something. And, and somebody gets hurt and they just, they just disappoint. I don't know what's going on with them. They were my sleeper team at the beginning of the year. Yeah, like I'm not worried about the Cavs. I'm really not worried about Indy too. They can't play any defense. Um, the Heat I'm concerned about solely because they have Spolstra, but this team should win it all, and they should at least get. Well, a game one thing finals. about Indy, Celtics haven't played Indy yet, and they just got Siakam. I forgot about them. I'm actually worried about Indy. I think they could honestly be the two seed in the East. I just, I just don't think they can play any defense. Well, if the Celtics miss threes, they don't need to play defense. Again, again, very fair point. Um, yeah, I'm interested. I think I think the biggest challenge should be Denver in the West. But, like, honestly, they should they should at least breeze through the first two rounds. Because if they get the one seed, you assume that the Bucks and the Sixers are going to get the two and the three seeds. Then you're playing I think one. Indy might. Yeah. I mean, that's true. But, they look good. If they get how, I mean, look at the numbers Halliburton was putting up before he got hurt. There was one point. There was a stretch. He had thirty assists, zero turnovers. That's gonna yeah. win. That's gonna win them a lot of games. And and one thing I know this is kind of sidetracked real quick, but very rarely in the NBA do you see a win-win trade. And I think the Kings and the Pacers did that. Kings got Sabonis and Pacers got Halliburton. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. Um. But I think as a Celtics fan, you're kind of rooting for the Bucks and the Sixers to finish as the two and the three in whatever order. Kind of beat up on each other and beating Giannis, just banging heads down low. And then you should be able... You sh- I get that you're concerned about the Knicks or the Heat or the Pacers, but you should beat those teams in six games. Like, that... And then you should... You should if this season doesn't result in a championship, it's a failure. But if it doesn't result in, you know, an NBA Finals appearance, it's a massive failure well and here's what i'll say too is i mean you know i don't like as a fan i don't like to think this but the clock is ticking right i mean brown got paid 300 million tatum's going to be eligible for i think way more than that i think it's almost 400 million i believe 395 maybe but i mean (laughs) it's going to be tough to put pieces around those guys especially if you got two guys making over 300 million so i feel like the window might start to close a little bit. Might might be a little tight to squeeze through as the money becomes tighter, but we'll see where that goes. All right, Swin. Um, let's focus in on the AFC and NFC championship games for a little bit here. Um, we don't need to recap the divisional games. We're kind of just blend those in as we go. But we're going to preview each of the games here. We're not just going to sit here and give you our picks because, like, at the end of the day, Swin, there's only three games left, and the, the listeners deserve kind of an in-depth um, in-depth look at each of these games. Let's start with the AFC because it's the first game chronologically. Uh, Swin, I know you and I are going to be watching the games together. Um, but Chiefs take on Baltimore. Baltimore's favored by three and a half at the three o'clock game. Swin, just your your initial thoughts on the game before we get into some more specific stuff here. Um, I I mean, I, I in my opinion, I think it'll probably be the better of the two games for sure. Uh, two superstar quarterbacks. There's no question about it. Both both QBs have won MVP. Both exciting in their own way, right? And it's going to be interesting to see. Uh, Patrick Mahomes against, I'd say, 
I mean, I think it's fair to say they're a top three defense, if not the best defense in the league. Uh, it's it's going to be fun to watch. And I, I, I mean, people, I think people are sleeping on the Ravens a little bit. And I know I, I mentioned this a ton with a million teams, but by no means is you just strolling the Baltimore and think it's going to be easy. Fans are rowdy, especially in the playoffs. Tough environment, regular season or playoffs. So I'm going to be interested to, to see what happens here. And I mean, you saw last week, I mean, the Bills defense couldn't stop a nosebleed. And I, I think that that gave them a, a big advantage. I mean, it was just 30 yard bombs left and right to Rasheed Rice, MVS. So I, I think the, the Ravens defense might give the Chiefs a lot of challenges. And I think it's, it's more going to be a Chiefs offense versus the Ravens defense than, the, you know, just the teams itself. Yeah, and continuing on with that point, the Ravens' strength on defense is the linebackers, right? Raquan Smith, Patrick Queen. The safeties, Cal Hamilton, Marcus Williams. You know, if one of those guys locks up Travis Kelsey, um, it, it becomes a completely different game. I think for the Chiefs' offense, the key is Pacheco, right? Can you kind of run the ball a little bit just to, you know, stop that Baltimore linebackers a little bit from just dropping into pass coverage? I think that's a big thing. But... I'm get, I said this last week, and I'll just repeat it again. I still don't trust Lamar in the playoffs. Sure, he had a good game last week, right? Two rushing touchdowns. And I don't trust his... I don't doubt his ability to run the football. But my concern is his ability to pass, right? Can he come from behind in a playoff game? And that's that's just a concern for mine um, in terms of, you know, his ability to, you know, pass from behind rather than, you know, kind of get a lead and then just kind of run and hit it off and make, you know, short, quick passes. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, as you said, I think the way that the Chiefs are going to really take advantage of this game is make Lamar throw the ball, right? Make him make a mistake. I know in years past, he's had trouble throwing the ball. He's, he's, so you, you can't let him escape the pocket like the Texans did and make plays. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a big thing, too. Um, in terms of this, you know, game, I think it's kind of interesting, right? Because you have Mahomes, you just beat Allen, and you had the Bills winning the Super Bowl. Um, but I, I just really don't know what it's going to do because I think Baltimore's defense is the best team, best one left. But can they slow down Patrick Mahomes? I mean, from a personal, like, standpoint— I hate the Ravens. Like I hope, I hope they lose every game. But I hate the Chiefs more. So I'm rooting for the Ravens. I just don't. At the end of the day, it's the best quarterback in the league, right? The best one, of the top three tight end, um, a top three defense, the best defense, and is I think it's gonna be a bit of a slog in this game. I don't know if you feel the same way. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's it's definitely gonna be. I mean, from a fan standpoint, fun game to watch. Yeah, uh, I'm excited to see. Um, I feel like the Ravens and the the Chiefs are, are kind of similar. I mean, obviously, quarterback position is is kind of an advantage for the Chiefs, but I mean, neither one of them really have, you know, elite wide receiver rooms like that number one top guy that can really. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess the the Chiefs have Kelsey, and I'm not sure Mark Andrews' status. I know he practiced in weeks past, but still. Um, the wide receivers are a little weaker than in years past that they've had, obviously, with the departure of Tyreek Hill for the, for the Chiefs. So um, it's definitely going to be interesting to see. I feel like it might be a run-heavy game for both teams, honestly. 
as I mean, obviously expect that from the Ravens. Swin, so who do you got winning this one? Uh, I'm gonna go with the Chiefs. Um, one because I've really struggled with uh, my picks this playoffs, and I don't like the Chiefs. So I hope I'm wrong to continue the trend because I've been really bad. Yeah. But I also, and I mean, I'm not saying the NFL is you know kind of scripted in any way, but you know, I just feel like the NFL might want to push to get Taylor Swift to the Super Bowl, and I'm just gonna leave it there, and you can take what you want from that. But that's my opinion. Yeah, um, that's kind of interesting too. I'm gonna take the Chiefs twenty-four to twenty. Um, I I'm I'm still not ready to bet against Mahomes in the playoffs. Right, three playoff losses: one to Burrow, one to, two to Brady. But I think the most important factor is I think that the Chiefs are gonna have a little better success in the red zone. I think the Ravens are gonna end up kicking a couple field goals. I also think that if Lamar has to pass, I think this Chiefs secondary will be able to set him down. Because I know they have better weapons than year pass. I know Zay Flowers and OBJ are two of the best receivers they've had in Lamar's career with Baltimore. But um, still a concern for me if this becomes a pass. If Lamar has to play from behind, I don't know if I completely trust him yet. So I'm going to go with the Chiefs 24-20. Uh, yeah, as I, I forgot to say my score. I have, I have the Chiefs winning this game. 34 to 31. I think it'll be a really close game. Yeah, I've, I think it's going to be a fun one to watch. I'm two of the best quarterbacks in the league going at it. But let's go to San Francisco, Detroit, um, traveling there. San Francisco's favored by six and a half here. Um, this game's at 630. This is what I want to start with. I really hope Detroit wins this game. Like, I, I, I know you probably do as well. I hope um, Detroit wins. But I just don't know if they have the defense to stop the Niners right now. Yeah, and I mean, I'll say this too before we um, get really get into it here is if the if the Chiefs and the Lions both win, it would be the it would be a rematch of the first game of this NFL season. I just thought that kind of be funny to think about. Um, yeah. Anyway, I think that. I think the 49ers won this game. I know. I, I, people are joking and saying that the Lions are America's team because everybody's rooting for them. And I don't know. I just I don't think the Lions. I think the Lions are very flawed. But I, and I think the reason they've made it this far in the playoffs, obviously the Cowboys helped them out. But another big reason is that Jared Goff has played nearly perfect football. Perfect. I uh, yeah. I don't think he's thrown a pick in the playoffs. I don't and, think so either. And, and I don't think he's fumbled either. I know he had some fumble problems earlier in the season. And here's what I'll tell you. I mean, this goes for any team. If you don't have turnovers like picks and fumbles, you will win most of the playoff games. It's it's really yeah. hard. It's really hard to lose a playoff game when you, you know, you play nearly perfect like Jared Goff has. And I give him credit. Uh, he's getting, you know, Laporta was heavily involved. Amon Ross St. Brown, obviously a Pro Bowl caliber player. I think he just fell short this year. But I I mean, this is going to be a... I think this... As I said earlier, the other game is going to be more of a defensive game. I think this is going to be all offense. I yeah, just I'm expect not, a, a high-scoring game. I know the line... Uh, no, excuse me. The Niners defense is really good. But 
I think the Lions offense can hang with them, right? They've got a good blend of the run, the pass, some more of like, you know, smash mouth football with David Montgomery, more of like a quickness, agile back with Jameer Gibbs. Look, I mean, and this is a bigger discussion that we'll have, you know, if the Niners do make the Super Bowl when we do that episode. But I don't know if I trust Brock Purdy, right? He looked awful in the game against Green Bay, but I got to give him credit. You know, the dude had a really bad game. I think nobody would say he had a good game. And he was awesome on that final drive, right? Absolutely phenomenal. And and I got to give the guy credit because he put, you know, he put his money where his mouth was that last drive. But I'm still concerned about the Niners' um, offense in terms of, you know, their ability with the Lions' defense just solely because the Lions haven't been able to play defense all year. The Lions don't have any cornerbacks. But, Swin, one guy that we haven't mentioned who's so incredibly important is Debo Samuel and the effect that he has on this game. So just your thoughts on that quickly. Yeah, and that's where I was going next. I mean, obviously, yeah, Debo Samuel really opens up the offense for him. And, and he, I, I, I believe they said he was about a 50-50 shot, right? So maybe, maybe not. I think this is a bigger impact than people are talking about, honestly. Um, I mean... You saw it against Green Bay a little bit, right? They they really couldn't get the receivers involved because Brock Perry didn't play great. Now I'm not I don't want to use this in, as an excuse for him because Jordan Love also played, but I, the weather was definitely an issue for Brock. Weather Purdy. was definitely a factor. His I mean, if you just watch the way he was throwing the ball, that thing was quack, and he was throwing a lot of ducks. So. I think that definitely had an impact. He did have that one big throw to George Kittle, but other than that, it was a lot of short throws, nothing too crazy. So I think if depending on what the weather is, I'm not quite sure as of today, but I think they'll they'll look to be more aggressive, especially against the weaker Lions secondary. So that's that. But Debo, without Debo, that, that definitely impacts the deep game as, as well as, especially the run game as well. I feel like that opens it up for McCaffrey too. Yeah, I've I've heard that's gonna be sunny and pretty good weather there. I think Debo being out if he's out completely changes this game. Um, you know, the Niners are losing their top weapon on the outside, right? It's a completely you know, you don't have that element with the jet sweeps or keeping Debo in the backfield or kinda lining up McCaffrey out wide, lining Debo up in the back. You you don't have as much creativity and D, and that's not to say that Debo's, you know, a luxury piece. He's a vital piece to this Niners team. And I believe that I believe they have a losing record without Debo Samuel, but that's that's my chief concern. Swin, who do you got winning this game? Um, and your score? Um, it's I mean again tough to say. I feel like Debo really, on my mind, would flip the game. I'm gonna go with um San Fran thirty to twenty three. Um, I think that Debo at least tries to play. Obviously, yeah, I think he will. But I also think Ayuk's going to have a better game. I think Kittle will have a bigger impact. Um, as you said, I mean, even guys like Juwan Jennings stepped up in the rain. So I expect him to be more involved as well. And I just think that the 49ers defense is, is better than the Lions. So I, I'm going to give the advantage to the 49ers. Yeah, and Swim, like I have no inside knowledge on Debo. My guess is he plays on a pitch count. Um if Debo's completely out, though, that completely changes the game. I have the Niners winning 31-28. to I think that Dan Campbell is going to go for it from fourth and goal from the two and get it, which is going to be really big. 
but I just don't think they're going to have enough to on defense to stop him. I actually think the Niners kick a game-winning field goal where they just completely milk the clock. I want Detroit to win. I'm looking forward to this one. But I do have the Niners 31-28. and Yeah, um, and I mean, you mentioned a good point real quick, too. I actually think this could be why they lose. Dan Campbell goes for it on a fourth down. They don't get it. That could be why they lose. It could also be by they, why they win. And, and just to backtrack real quick, the forty nine uh, the the Packers went for it in the red zone. They didn't get it. If they kicked the field goal, could have been a tie game. Could have been a totally different game, but we'll never know. Yeah, so that's just had, something to think about. Yeah, the Packers had three red zone trips, uh, the first three drives of the game and only got six points off of it. Um obviously that missed field goal by Andrews Carlson killed them, but that's kind of you know, that's kind of where the problems are, I would say, in the red zone. But Swin, that'll do it for us today, guys. As always, thank you for listening. Please visit our website, www.frontballparksofbusbeers.com. Our Instagram is there, our Twitter is there, our Gmail is there. Guys, please DM or email us any segment ideas, um, positive or negative feedback. We do love hearing from you guys. Maybe you want us to discuss a segment. Maybe you want to be on the show. Maybe you just want to tell us that we're idiots for picking a Kansas City-San Francisco um, Super Bowl rematch. That's completely fine. Uh, we, we've gotten a couple of those emails in recent weeks. But thank you guys for listening. As always, I'm Perry Morzios alongside my co-host Ryan Swimmer signing out with the From Ballparks to Buzzy Beers podcast. Have a good one, everybody.